Hello, and welcome to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. My name is Andrew Robinson, and I'm joined by Rachel Washburn, Major General James Spidermarks, and Peter Chur. Today, we're going to be talking about the meeting between South Korean President Moon and North Korean Supreme Leader Kim. We're also going to be discussing the 10 key areas of focus when it comes to the modernization of China's military. Sir, this week we saw some promising news out of the Korean Peninsula with the Kim and Moon meeting. What is your take on how that impacts further negotiations with the Kim regime? And also, as always, the trade war with China remains concerning and relevant. How do you see China's strategy to be competitive on the global stage? Really interesting time, isn't it? We're right on the heels of the meeting between President Moon from South Korea and Chairman Kim from North Korea, where they were lovey-dovey, big hugs and kisses all around. And I'm not being facetious. I mean, this is a, a, a good step, you know, kind of a continuation of the dialogue between our president and Kim and certainly our deep and trusting relationship between the United States and, and Seoul. These are all moves that are really, I think, in the aggregate should make us feel very good about the possibility of having some real de-escalation and some advances in terms of achieving a more peaceful and uh, focused kind of an, an agreement in terms of what we think Northeast Asia should look like. North Korea clearly is not just a Northeast Asian regional power anymore. I mean, it's got nukes, it's got missiles. So this is important globally. And the fact that Moon and Kim got together, I'm very buoyed by all of that, excited about it. So in light of that, I mean, it really just put the spotlight on Beijing and is Washington and Beijing, will Washington and Beijing figure out where, what the touch points look like so that the influence that Washington has in Seoul and Beijing has in Pyongyang can really gain some momentum and really move this thing in the right direction. And then clearly in my mind, it's all about denuclearization. Is that possible? The quid pro quo of how do we march down the path toward denuclearization or something that's going to be close. You know, my, my view up front is that denuclearization of the North is not going to happen, but I got that. It's aspirational to say that that's a, that's a goal that should be out there. I'm not saying when it's going to happen. But those are, I mean, this, this meeting between those two leaders and the fact that Kim said, look, I'm open to meeting with President Trump again. I think that's a good sign and a, and a new invitation for Mike Pompeo to come back to Pyongyang and really jumpstart these negotiations. That's all really, really good stuff. And it really puts a very strong focus on what will we do, the United States and China do, to try to move this dial. And I think a focus, it's a perfect time for us to really take a real long, hard look at what they're trying to achieve. General Marks, you've talked a lot over the last few weeks uh, as we've been covering China about the intersection of the financial aspects, economic aspects, and the military. We've been watching China evolve into an expeditionary force. We've seen their technology advance and to the point where they are a legitimate contender in the military power space. Can you explain how you see that threat evolving? Yeah, I, absolutely, especially in light of what we were just chatting about in terms of the meeting between North Korea and South Korea. It's really important that we kind of understand what we're dealing with and what our expectations might be with China. And as I've said many, many times, look, the United States can compete with anybody, and we do that by default. I mean, that's just kind of our natural inclination. 
to make sure we're protecting and defending the Constitution of the United States. And we have to make very conscious and narrowly defined decisions in terms of what we want to try to cooperate, where we want to try to cooperate, how we want to try to cooperate, and we don't do that naturally. So these are very tough things we have to get our arms around. So taking that as a real consideration, let's take a, let's take a second and look at the Chinese military. I tell you, uh, over the course of the last decade, there have been some amazing advances in terms of the modernization of the People's Liberation Army. And that's what the military in China is called. Everything is the People's Liberation Army Navy the People's Liberation Army, Air Force, etc. So these motions to try to create a modernized force are real, they're deep, there's incredible economic commitment to that, and I think it's important that we get our arms around it. So let me, let me kind of take a step back and review what I think are the 10 most important points about the PLA modernization. First of all, their doctrine now states in very emphatic terms to create a mobile, modular, and lethal ground force as the centerpiece of joint operations. Now, that's a, that's a direct lift from the PRC document laying out what their modernization efforts need to look like. I got to tell you, that could have been written by the United States military. It could have been written by our DOD, by our doctrine folks of all of our services. So, it's, so what we're looking at is no longer, and we've talked about this, a defensive People's Liberation Army, but we're looking at an expeditionary People's Liberation Army, Army Navy, Army Air Force. We're looking at a Chinese military that wants to reach across and over the horizon to fight and win wars. Again, a lift from their doctrine. So that's really piece number one. These guys are expeditionary and they're building a doctrine that impacts that directly and lays it out very precisely. Number two, the Chinese want to degrade the U.S. technological advantages, and they want to do that specifically, again, lifting from their words. They want to do that through cyber. They want to make sure they can protect their citizens' access to online, and they want to try to ensure that foreign investment can still get to China so that they now have the capability and the capacity to ensure that their doctrinal initiatives can be met in terms of creating this greater expeditionary force. Very, very interesting that they're taking a military approach toward this and immediately establishing what those economic imperatives need to be. Number three, very specifically, they have a very strong maritime or Navy advancement profile in this. And they realize that in their, and they state very clearly, that in their development of enhanced naval capacity, they have to be prepared as a capability of first engagement that they might be in a conflict with the United States. Very interestingly, obviously our ground forces may not engage, our air forces may not engage directly, but they are very much aware of and are building a capacity in their Navy to be prepared for either intentional or unintentional engagements with the United States at sea. Very, very important for us to realize that there's a real opportunity for the United States to embrace China and say, okay, let's avoid that bad outcome and let's start working together in some way so that we can build trust to avoid that. Maybe we can advance our own capabilities and yours in a way that decreases the temperature of a potential conflict. Four, there really is a desire to increase the amount of control that exists over the horizon in terms of where China engages, and a real clear effort to try to avoid conflict, to avoid direct combat. That is a direct lift from Sun Tzu. 
Um, if, if you were looking at military doctrine and the tenets that underpin all military doctrine, it's win the war before you fire the first shot. It's exactly what the Chinese are talking about. So in a very slow, very methodical, very linear way, increase control, decrease the temperature in terms of conflict, but be prepared at every step to engage. It's, it's fascinating to look at this, and we probably shouldn't be surprised. The fifth area of engagement is what they call the increased use of information in order to direct operational capacity, which is not dissimilar to our doctrine that talks about net-centric operations, which by definition is the use of overwhelming information technology and communications to gain operational advantage. Really what that speaks to is situational awareness. How much do we know? When do we know it? And how does that affect decision-making and accelerate operations at the speed of information? Chinese are moving along that path, obviously, very aggressively. The sixth area is intelligence collection. These are words from the Chinese of U.S. diplomatic, economic, academic, and defense capacities. Those are the elements of power. Diplomacy, economics, academics in this case, I would say without a stretch, is information, and military. So again, I'm not surprised at all. They are lifting from our understanding and how we portray ourselves in terms of how we want to try to exercise influence through those application of those elements of power. And they are talking about direct intelligence collection along each one of those verticals. The seventh area is their use of space and specifically counter space. They know we're in space. We, they know what our capacities are for intelligence and all manner of activity in space and the um, collection of, you know, the constellation of satellites that we have as a matter of routine so that we can just do routine commerce. It's important for us to realize that the Chinese now are working in a very precise way to counter our capacity. What's left unsaid is how are they going to advance theirs? The eighth area, they are developing very aggressively the air component of their nuclear triad. We've had that forever. They want to join that triad. They have ground-based and sea-based. They now want to create an air-based capacity to deliver nuclear capabilities. Their Belt and Road Initiatives, what they call the BRI, really speaks to, in this particular case, this is number nine, access through economic engagement, like what, like what they're doing in Indonesia, like what they've done for years in Africa. They want to buy influence, and they're going to do it through their Belt and Road Initiative, which gives them a military capacity. That's access. That's a presence over the horizon that allows them to move very, very swiftly into various pieces of terrain around the globe with pre-existing relationships because they've bought their way in. And then finally, number, uh, number 10 is the, what's their ongoing relationship with Taiwan. The Chinese do not remove from the table the fact that they might want to reunify and bring Taiwan back into the People's Republic. That's very, very troubling. You know, since 1979, we've had the Taiwan Relations Act, which really says the United States has a commercial and cultural relationship with Taiwan. There is nothing in the Taiwan Relations Act that speaks to military aid or coming to the defense of Taiwan, but through commercial and cultural engagements over the past 40 years, 
we've been able to minimize the temperature there, but the Chinese don't talk about not engaging with Taiwan in a way that might move them back into and make them part of the mainland. Very, very troubling. Peter, so as General Marks has laid out, we are very much in competition militarily with China. But as far as economic warfare goes, it's been more than a year. What is your outlook today in the current landscape of our trade war with China? Yeah, I think you know we have drawn our line in the sand. We've been implementing tariffs. China has been responding. We continue to respond and implement more tariffs. I think right now the market's taking our reactions as a negotiating ploy, as you know, taking the stand that we said. I think one thing that's very interesting, China has actually offered globally to reduce tariffs, so they are actually being proactive. Having said that, they would keep their tariffs on U.S. companies that have been punitive to China. So I think what they're trying to do in terms of the battleground that they are laying out is, hey, we are going to be accommodating, we are going to step back, but if you are punishing us, we are going to punish you right back. So what it's creating is a better playing table for companies to do business with China, but it's now, so long as we keep our pressure on them, it's creating a much better playing field for European and Japanese companies rather than U.S. companies. So that's where the battleground is heating up right now. Trump just came out today supporting you know, U.S. farmers. I think we've got our commodity products that we are trying to sell to them. Liquid natural gas keeps coming up as a thing that we could be selling to China that would be very good for domestic production, domestic growth, helping China at the same time secure a good source of liquid natural gas. I expect to hear a lot more volatility over the coming month as both sides dig in, but then try and come up with a deal. The wild card to me is we still have not seen a deal with NAFTA, so Canada and Mexico and the U.S. still do not have a deal. I think getting that deal done first is a priority. If that deal gets done, it brings China to the table sooner. The longer that holds off, the more risk that we start seeing a world agreement come into place where the U.S. is not really involved becomes more of a risk. I don't think that comes quickly, but we do have to be aware, as General Marx has pointed out, China is preparing for military. They are not our close ally. They are not our friend, and that applies to trade. So we're going to have to be very careful. I continue to believe that we are going to see first a NAFTA deal, and then shortly after some sort of a deal with China. We will not get the intellectual property rights we want, because I think China really, really, really wants those for themselves. Having said that, they will agree to buy some commodities and other things that let this move forward. So it's a real battleground right now. It is heating up. Markets are extremely calm about this. You know, equities are hitting new highs today. I think everyone still believes that we're in the stage where it's just a negotiating ploy and we will come to a deal. What I'm watching for is when something goes from being a negotiating ploy to an intractable policy decision. We're a ways away from that yet, but that is the risk. As this rhetoric heats up, that we entrench ourselves in positions that can't be defended and leave us at a risk of a real war, which will be harmful to both countries. Thank you, everyone, for contributing to this conversation. And thank you as well to our listeners. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. Academy Securities is a service-disabled veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to hire, train, and mentor military veterans to develop careers in finance. My name is Andrew Robinson, and I'm your host, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon.